welcome to our next edition of Tanakh Talks. I'm broadcasting live from Malone Shvud in the hills overlooking Jerusalem. My name is Yaakov Beasley, and today we're going to be doing something a little different. We're not going to be talking directly about text, but rather the background to text. What am I referring to? The history of the Nevi'im, the prophets. When did they speak, and why did they speak the way they did? Those people who study Tanakh often start to read the later prophets, especially both Isaiah, Yermiyahu, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Yechezkel, and the 12 minor prophets, as they're called, because the size of their books are generally between 3 to 7 to 8 to 9 chapters, not very large, Zechariah and Hosea being exception with 14 chapters each. And people have a tendency to get discouraged, and I understand. The Hebrew is difficult, it's poetic, it's not standard syntax, or generally sometimes not standard grammar. There's a lot of metaphoric and poetic and literary flourishes that a modern reader would have a difficulty in understanding. But most importantly, it all seems to be saying the same thing. After all, you read a prophet and it says, the Jews have sinned because of fill in the blank. It's like a mad lib, the sin of idolatry or social injustice. And then because of the sin that they have performed, the punishment will be X. Unless, of course, they do repentance. However, in the end, God will save us because God loves us in some shape or form. And for most people, that is the extent of their knowledge of the prophets. And they don't understand why there are over 200 chapters of texts which generally say the same thing. If Isaiah and Micha and Yermiao and Yechezkel are all saying the same idea, what new ideas are they adding to the discussion? This doesn't help us whatsoever. So what I want to do in this next series is first to look at three specific time periods and discuss what is the historical background of the prophets, the later prophets, the Nevi'im Achronim, and then using the Book of Twelve, the Treasar prophets, as an example, go through each prophet one by one, very short little podcasts, and then we will be able to discuss what the meaning of each specific one is and contrast them and show why each one is unique and why his message could not have been left out of the Tanakh, out of the canon. So let's begin. When we say Nevi Machronim, the later prophets, the first question that should come to mind is, well, what does this mean, later prophets? Who were the early prophets? Well, we look in biblical texts. We look in the Sefer Shmuel. David has Natan, who fearlessly confronts him after David sins with Bathsheba, whatever that sin may be. We have, of course, the center of the Book of Kings, Sefer Malachim, are at least 20 chapters almost dealing with not the king's but the focus is on Eliyahu, Elijah, and Elisha, and their interactions with kings like Ahab, but also Yehu, and Yeroam, and Ahaziah, and all these discussions that they have, they are the center. Why are they not considered part of the later prophets? And the technical answer says, well, they didn't write their books down, and they delivered them orally. That may or may not be true for the later prophets as well. We don't know who did the actual writing. Yermiah who spoke, but it was Barapin, who, his um, scribe, Barapineri, who actually did the writing. So what defines later prophets, Nevi Marchon? That's our first step. And our first simple way of looking at it is, who is their audience? The prophets, what we call the former prophets, the early prophets, Eliyahu, Natan, Gad, Ido, they all talk directly to kings. Achiah HaShilani speaks to Yeravam. Gad and Natan speak to David. Eliyahu speaks to Ahav. That is their audience. 
Elisha begins this movement to becoming a more of a populist preacher. He's going around the countryside performing miracles more than anybody before him and really since. But even so, he's involved in the inner machinery of the northern kingdom. He is the one who appoints Yehu. He is the one who Yehoahaz mourns, you know, avi avi, you know, when he is dying. The kings of Yisrael are intimately connected to him. He's still very much a court prophet, somebody who's involved with the kingdom. But I think that leads to a more important distinction. Why are they working with the kingdom? Because they believe or they understand that the kingdom can be saved. In Deuteronomy 11, in Devarim Yud Aleph, the second chapter of Shema, we read a list of punishments that will fall upon B'nai Israel, the Jewish people, if they should fail to keep the commandments. There's an interesting progression. If the gift that we get for reward is produce and bountiful harvest, then the punishment obviously becomes lack of rain and the resulting famines and droughts. That makes sense. If that doesn't ha- work, however, then we have a small little phrase in Hebrew, You will be lost quickly from the land that you are on. In other words, if droughts no longer work and convince the Jewish people to return to God, then they will face exile. The major drought that occurs in the Bible is the drought of chapters 17 and 18 in Malachim Aleph in Kings 1, when Eliyahu essentially shuts off the tap. He declares there will be a drought, and that drought lasts for three years, which means that the next time that we get to a crisis stage, the drought is no longer available as an option. The Nevi'im Achronim, the later prophets, are the first to talk openly about the prospect of exile as a punishment. In the northern kingdom's case, in the case of Israel, or as it's called after its capital city, Shomron, Samaria, that exile is permanent, it is final, and they do not come back. In the case of the southern kingdom, they will be exiled as well, 150 years later. A small group does survive, what Micha calls the Sharit, the remnant, but it is no longer what it used to be. I think the most important distinction that we have between the earlier prophets and the later prophets, those that are, that are now written down, has nothing to do with the form in which they convey their message. They were speakers as much as the earlier ones. But they're the first to openly say, this kingdom doesn't last. And therefore they speak to the people out in the streets, and they are telling people, you face the prospect of leaving the land, being exiled from the land, not leaving the land voluntarily. You face the prospect of being exiled from the land if you don't change your ways. With that thought in mind, let's now go look at the historical background of the later prophets. We see that the later prophets generally group themselves into three centuries. The 8th century, between the years, let's say, 800 to 700 BCE. In that we find Amos, Hosea, Micha, Yeshayahu. We then have the next grouping in the latter half of the 7th century before the Common Era. I'm using the historical dating for reasons we'll talk about in a later podcast. And that includes Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, also, Yehezkel and Jeremiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. This is the later days of Judah. We'll talk about this next week with God's help. And finally, we see a group of prophets that appear upon the return of the exiles of Judea back to the land in the 6th century, the 5th century, before the common era, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. These are the three main groups, the 8th century, the end of the 7th century, 
and then the return, which is about the 6th, 5th century before the Common Era. As this is the first of the quick little podcasts on the history of the prophets, the background history, which helps us appreciate their message, let's begin with the 8th century. The century really divides itself into two. You would say, okay, we have the year 800 before the Common Era and the year 700 before the Common Era. There are there is, however, really one date that I need to look at, and that is the date 745 before the Common Era. What happens in 745 before the Common Era is not a date that is written in the Bible, but what, but it is the ascension of Telegish Pileshar III to the throne of Assyria. And this is going to be the game changer that completely will rewrite the entire ancient Near East. Assyria goes from being a regional power, but essentially based in northern Iraq, Mesopotamia, to a country that within 50, 60 years conquers the entire ancient Near East. We're talking not just including Israel and Judah, we're talking Syria, we're talking sacking Thebes, which is a thousand miles south of the beginning of the Nile River. Um, what the Egyptians called Noabon in sixties in six hundred and sixty three before the Common Era, the Syrians create this war machine that is unparalleled in human history. They are the by far and away the strongest, most powerful, and probably the most vicious country or empire that the world has ever known up until this point, without exaggeration. So the first date we have to keep in mind is the year seven forty five, the ascent of Telegus Pelagashar to the throne of Assyria. With that in mind, this is important for us because, as I mentioned earlier, the main theme of the later prophets, especially Amos and Hosea and Micha, is you are in mortal danger now. If you don't realize this, you are making a tremendous error in your ways. Playing politics as usual, what, doing commandments the way Isaiah called Kanashimul Madim out of rote, out of habit, as he says in chapter 29, verse 12 and 13, this isn't going to work anymore. The stakes are much, much higher. If we now take a look at the two kingdoms, especially if it's one of these fascinating things, if I was to look at the year 780, 790, 770, I, and then I'd go in a time machine, skip forward 50, 60 years, I would be amazed at the difference. At the beginning, in the, before 745, you have this really paradoxical state. Both Samaria and Judah, Israel and um, Yehuda, are really in the most powerful state they've ever been. The northern kingdom will be under the rule of Yahu's great-grandson, Yeravam ben Yoash. It is mind-boggling how strong and powerful and the influence that he exercises over not just northern Israel, but Syria, Aram. The entire region is huge and is described in great detail in Malachim Bet Yedalad in chapter 14 in Kings 2. In the south, we have a king, Uziah. He's also called Azariah in Kings and Uziah in Divrayamim in Chronicles. But he's on the throne for 52 years. There's stability, there's strength. Chronicles describes in chapter 26 how powerful the kingdom has become. He's spread southward. They are at their, you know, they're at the zenith of their strength and power. Archaeological finds, you know, start to point to the appearance of pottery and large, but in very, very exact forms, which implies trade. It used to be, if you in earlier archaeological sites, you know, from the a thousand years before the common era, fifteen hundred years before the common era, you'll see different pots of different sizes. That's what people ate. But the moment you start exporting and engaging in commerce and business, you'll see that the pots start to assume a uniform shape and size, 
which is not the way we eat as a normal basis, but when we start selling, this is what happens. The country has become much richer, both in the north and south, much richer. They're at peace. They don't have threats anymore. The Syrian government to the north, what they call Aram, has been weakened because it's stuck between Israel on one side, and yet it's on the other side. They are the ones who will be dealing with the brunt of the Assyrian pressure coming in from the east. So you have peace and prosperity. And despite that, the two kingdoms are divided really in four ways. You have not just geographically into two kingdoms, that's number one, the north and the south. You have a religious divide. In the north, they worship God, but they do it at golden calves, and occasionally they'll throw in a little bit of prayers to Baal and Asherah just to cover their bases. Whereas in the south, it's still pure worship of a of God, of Hashem. And you won't find, you'll very rarely find in southern Judea any signs of idols or trinkets among Jewish settlements. And perhaps most troubling is there's this new societal divide as well. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. The urban elite are now engaged in commerce and trade. These are the opportunities that opened up to them. One of the things that they are, of course, exporting are crops that are produced by the farmers, by the workers, the people who generally own their own farms. But slowly and surely what happens is the rich landowners start to buy land and they produce not the crops that you need for sustenance, but rather for export and trade. They charge the prices that they charge. And people, of course, they set high prices of grain to buy to plant for next year. The farmers are forced to take out mortgages on their ancestral lands. Slowly they lose more lands. In 50 years, you'll start to, there seems to be signs that what used to be free and independent farming community that lived in the hills and in the um, lowlands has now become indentured serfs to a wealthy elite, the one percenters who live in the cities who are engaging all this trade. They no longer own their lands. They are living off of mortgage. They've become tenant dwellers and workers on what used to be their grandfather's estates. And one can imagine that social divide as well. That's going to be tremendously important, especially in understanding both Amos in the north and Micha, especially in the south, who will rail against this no end. This isn't to say others don't. Isaiah in chapter 5, verse 10, after his discussion of the song of the vineyard that doesn't produce, i.e. the metaphor that the Jewish people have prevailed, provide God with the fruits that he is looking for, the fruits, of course, being be good, just, and right people, mishpat tzedakah, but then he talks about how they join land to each other and they start buying up lands and how the rich elite are starting to are oppressing the poor. Things that have been, these are things that the Torah has explicitly warned against. You see it in Leviticus 25, you see it in um, Devarim, Deuteronomy 16. But all this really are the fault lines that run underneath what appear to be two very strong and stable and prosperous kingdoms in the year 760. 760, of course, is another significant year. That's the year of a large earthquake, remnants of which we've seen in Chatzor, discovered by Yigdal Yadin, Yigdal Yadin, who showed that you can see there's where the epicenter was. This was a huge earthquake in the time of Uziah. In fact, later rabbinic traditions, beginning with Josephus, say that why did this earthquake occur in 760? This is the year that Uziah makes his greatest error. What does he do? He goes into the Holy of Holies. It's described in great detail in Chronicles 2.26, how he goes in, and when he does, he gets leprosy. Later rabbinic traditions will tie this. By the way, this earthquake is mentioned again in Zechariah 250 years later. Zechariah in chapter 14 will describe this will be the mountain will split just like the earthquake in the time of Uziah. This was the 
largest earthquake that the people of Israel had ever known at the time. I actually teach in a small little high school north of Beit Shemesh. We had a smaller earthquake, but you can see that Israel lying on the fault line between the African and the Asian. Um, this is prone to these earthquakes. And as I walk by it, I tell the students, as if you look at the windowsills, you can see where the building split right in two. You can see that one windowsill is actually two centimeters higher than the other. It's fascinating to look at. Um, it's amazing the power that an earthquake contains for those who don't live in areas um, which are prone to earthquakes. So 760 is an important year, but for the, as a general picture, both countries are doing well. We now go to the year 710, and what's happened? Yeruvim ben Yoash in the north ruled for 42 years. In the last 30 years, you have six kings, two possibly ruling simultaneously. You have tremendous splits. His son lasts six months. The next person lasts a month. You have Zechariah, Shalom, and Menachem, and Pekachiah, and Pekach, and Hosea. And they're all going back and forth. This is described in great detail in Divrei Yamin 15, 16, 17, until the eventual exile. The Assyrians come in, slowly they start slicing off land, and the some of the kings prefer to pay tribute, i.e. Menachem and Hosea. Other kings prefer to fight Pekach. In fact, Assyrian records mention Pekach, and they dismissingly, we killed him too. His plan of rebelling against the Assyrians does not work well. It only brings disaster. The Assyrians slice off the tribes that are on the other side of the Jordan, then they take from the north, Naphtali. Eventually, there's nothing left except the capital city, which will fall in 722 or possibly 721. The south doesn't do much better. What happens is after Uziah and his son Yotam leave the stage, Ahaz, who I date to 742 to 726, he's under a tremendous amount of pressure what to do with this Syrian encroachment. Israel under Pekach and Syria to the north, Aram, they want Judah to join in a large coalition. Maybe together they hope that they'll be able to defeat the Assyrians. It's folly, but they are willing to try. Now, in 734 to 732, they actually engage in a massive invasion of Judah, i.e. the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria invade Judah. This is described in tremendous detail in Chronicles 2.28. Tremendous damage. They get to the gates of Jerusalem. I actually date Ovadia's prophecy to hear. In addition to the Syrians and the um, people from Shomron, the Sumerians, i.e. Pekah, the country of Israel, to the north, Judah also faces pressure from the west, from the Philistines, who never turned down an opportunity to, to take advantage of their, the Jews who lived to next to them. The Philistines, of course, living on the coast between Ashdod south to Gaza. They have been reduced, weakened by David. They're almost non-existent for several centuries, but then they slowly have this minor renaissance, taking advantage of the people of Judah then. And, of course, Edom to the south comes and starts picking off little settlements of Judah in the south part of the Negev. So the poor king Ahaz, and I'm saying poor king in this, it's important to understand what he does, why he does what he does. Isaiah keeps counseling him, and this is Isaiah chapters 7 and 8, stay neutral, stay neutral, stay neutral, this will disappear, these problems will go away. Ahaz does, does however, what would have been unthinkable. He surrenders and capitulates to Assyria. He makes a treaty with the large enemy in order to rid himself of these small enemies. And the Assyrians come and they depose Kek. Pekach in the north, 
But the price of what Ahaz does, and this is apparently in the year 733, 732, is he erects a Mizbeach to the god Ashur, um, the Assyrian main god. Wherever the Assyrians went, they spread the... This is the temple they built in every city they conquered. You set up a, an altar to Ashur, which is their main god in their pantheon. They're not monotheistic, but they but this god becomes their uni, the unifying factor, religious um, deity across their empire, and it's growing very quickly. And this altar that Ahaz builds is put into Beit HaMikdash, and people are horrified. Yet, on the other hand, there are people who say, well, he saved us from the Assyrians, he saved us from Israel, he saved us from Syria, Aram. And one can imagine that people would say, listen, under the pressures that he did, this was understandable. Of course, the Bible does not look lightly with his, and with as forgiving an eye as I've portrayed this issue. But these are serious, serious decisions that Ahaz makes. His son, his, his son Hizkiyahu, of course, comes to power already at the state funeral, so memorably described in a wonderful article, it's worth finding online, between um, by Binyamin Lau and Rav Yol Ben Nun, how Hizkiyahu, instead of giving his father a proper state funeral, drags the funeral beer through the streets, you know, dragging his body on horses. He's repudiating what his father does. He goes back to the old-time religion. For the first decade of Hizkiyahu's life, he actually sees the downfall of Samaria. He's there. It's in the year six of his reign, as described in the beginning of Kings 2, chapter 18. He sends tribute to Assyria. This is all under Sargon, who has replaced Shalmanazar, who replaced Tegapagashar. The names of the Assyrian kings are not important. But slowly, Hizkiyahu starts to sense, and the Assyrians essentially grant him some religious autonomy. They're dealing with other issues in the east. In fact, Sargon will eventually die in battle in the year 705. His body is not recovered in Assyrian lore. That's never done. The body has to be recovered. It was, was a tremendous defeat. And Hizkiyahu, as it were, smells blood in the waters. He is already at the end of chapter, of chapter 20 in Kings 2. It describes how he's met Babylonian envoys. Babylonia being a serious traditional thorn into their south, and he decides to rebel against Assyria, the new king, Sancherif. He does not pay the tribute, he does not pay the taxes, and he gambles wrongly to the dismay of many of the prophets at the time. And this becomes the background for much of what Yeshua is going to discuss, and definitely what Micha discusses. Micha, I believe, is perhaps the most pacifist of all the prophets. He, in fact, is the one who, on one hand, Jeremiah 26 describes how the people remember him as the person who saved Jerusalem. And the way he saved it, ironically enough, was telling them, if you don't change your ways, Jerusalem will be destroyed. Zion is going to be plowed up by a f like fields, and Jerusalem is going to be turned into a forest. And whereas Isaiah talked about a messianic utopian vision of Jerusalem being the center of the world, and all the nations of the world will flow to Jerusalem to learn Torah and to settle their disputes. Micha uses the same prophecy, but he places it strategically where? After, in chapter, his chapter 4, whereas Isaiah puts it, I think it's his first prophecy, it's chapter 2, it's his first real prophecy. It's in the time of Uzi, as you can see by the context of chapter 2, the prosperity there sense of self-confidence in their own abilities that it permeates chapter 2 in Isaiah. That's probably the year 770, 760. Micha takes that same utopian messianic prophecy about Jerusalem being the center of the world. 
It's not the dream of Isaiah, it's rather something different. It is what he envisions, but only after the present Jerusalem, with all its corruption and all its injustice and all its dishonesty, is destroyed, which is how he ends chapter 3. And only then does he go into chapter 4, in the future we'll have a proper Jerusalem, a Jerusalem that is worthy of being a metropolis, a universal center for all people to learn what is right and wrong, but only after the present Jerusalem is destroyed. So we've discussed very briefly the political changes that have occurred, tremendous political um, upheaval from two very stable kingdoms in the first half of the 8th century to two kingdoms that are really fighting for their lives, looking for any lifeline. Do I turn to the Egyptians? Do I turn to the Assyrians? How do I deal with the oncoming Assyrian threat? But underneath that, the prophets are not playing politics, because the prophets always say this. If you get your moral and religious act together, you have nothing to fear. Hosea will talk a lot about the relationship between God and Israel. That's what Hosea is about, and therefore the metaphors of God as Father. Hosea, more than anybody else, will draw upon the history of the Jewish people. He quotes Genesis Breshit more than anybody else. He also is the one to introduce the metaphor of the relationship between God and Israel as if they were husband-wife. And Israel, of course, is being portrayed as an unfaithful wife or a promiscuous wife who doesn't appreciate the, all the goodness that she's been given comes from God. And we'll talk about what we talk about Hosea. Amos, his focus is laser sharp, and it's only on social injustice. In the South, Yeshua, Isaiah, is dealing with the politics. He is counseling politics. This is not to say he ignores in any way, shape, or form the social injustice, but that isn't his entire focus. And he, of course, is more optimistic. He's the one who will talk about that once the tree's been cut down, there'll be a stump growing, and from the stump will grow a new king who will be the Mashiach, i.e. the Chotem Yishai, the, you know, that's the image of chapter 11. This is who is going to re- replace. Micha is much harsher. Like Amos, his focus is almost entirely on the social injustices and the social imbalances that have occurred because of the prosperity. The prosperity led the rich to abuse the poor that he would have felt very home with the um, populace of the, the 99% against the 1% that is really sweeping the Western world today as we deal with this tremendous riches and yet this tremendous concentration of these riches in the hands of very few people and how that affects many people who are unable to function because of that concentration are unable to grow and the loss of, and these tremendous changes that have occurred in the economy and their loss of their homes their loss of their livelihood this is not anything new for us this is why these prophets are timeless with that thought in mind this is the historical background to the 8th century it's what the rabbis call there were four prophets who prophesied at one period of time Hosea, Amos, Micha, Yishayahu and this is how we conclude part one of our series on the historical background of the prophets Next week, with God's help, we'll be doing the middle of the 7th century. By this time, Israel is no longer. Judah is a quiet vassal state to Assyria. They'll have a brief renaissance under King Yoshiao, and then they'll face the Babylonian threat. With this, we have five prophets that we'll talk about briefly. Yoel's debatable when he appears. We'll talk about Yoel separately. And of course, near the end, when the Assyrian threat has been replaced, by the Babylonian threat, we will talk about Yechezkel and Yermiao. Have a good week and a Shabbat Shalom.